It is in prayer and worship where the church imagines a different world. It is in prayer and worship where the church learns to see differently. In the words of John de Grouchy, the South African who gave the Warfield Lectures on Liberating Reformed Theology. It is in prayer and worship where the church learns to see the world in the light of Christ, which is the paramount theological activity in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who so deeply inspired the church struggle in South Africa. Recent decades witnessed a flood of literature affirming these rich relationships between liturgy, imagination, and life, whether in liturgical studies, ecumenical work, doctrinal theology, theological ethics, or public theology. In prayer and worship, we are looking in the right direction, Stanley Hauerwas. From prayer and worship, the people depart with a renewed vision of the value patterns of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, by which they intend to glorify God in their whole life. Jeffrey Wainwright. In prayer and worship, the church is thinking our way into God's world. Douglas John Hall. In prayer and worship, the church experiences the creative tension between memory, hope, and now, which is key to Christian ethics, Wolfgang Huber. In worship, the church is desiring the kingdom, imagining the kingdom, and awaiting the king in the titles of James K.A. Smith's recent trilogy on worship, cultural formation, and public theology. This conviction is often linked to the principle of Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, the fifth century axiom that the rule of prayer establishes the rule of faith, that the way we pray and worship uh, informs the way we believe and think and speak. Applying this rule as Theological method is not without problems, as academic Dean James Kay has convincingly argued on more than one occasion. The Roman Catholic tradition shows a preference to treat worship as source and criterion for faith. Protestantism prefers the reverse logic to renew and reform worship from the perspective of faith. Yet in both directions, many questions remain. What counts as normative worship? On the one hand, what count as criteria to measure worship? On the other hand, still many are convinced that this creative tension remains fruitful. In his Warfield lectures, Karl Barth discussed prayer as the first work of theology. Not simply since theological reflection begins with prayer, but since it can only be done in the spirit of prayer. And already earlier in his The Gift of Freedom, Foundation of Evangelical Ethics, Barth argued that the heart of all theology 
lies in liturgical action. The old saying, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, he then said, far from being a pious statement, is one of the most profound descriptions of theological method. In fact, there have been many in recent years who suggested that a further aspect should be added. Our life, our ethics, discipleship, obedience should also reflect the way we worship and accordingly think and speak. Some proposed Lex Amandi, the law of loving, Lex Agendi, the law of action, some Lex Vivendi, the law of life, Klaus-Peter Jörns, a former editor of the Göttinger Predigtmeditationen, proposed Lex Convivendi, the law of life together. All these suggestions underlie, underline the reciprocal relationships between worship, theology, and life. The ecumenist and uh, liturgical theologian Jeffrey Wainwright's groundbreaking doxology has a subtitle, The Praise of God in Worship, Doctrine, and Life. And when Barth, in his posthumously published lectures, summarized these ethics of reconciliation as calling on God, and then discussed the Lord's Prayer as a description of the Christian life, this was precisely his intention. The Lord's Prayer, in the words of the North African theologian Tertullian, is a breviary of the whole gospel. Barth said that, that, that this, uh, this uh, invites us to apply the old adage that the law of prayer is the law of faith. His ethics of reconciliation was thus meant, and I quote, to understand the law of faith that is implicit in the law of prayer and is to be taken from it as a law of life, a criterion by which to answer our question concerning the obedience required of Christians. So in doing this, he directly appealed to the Reformed tradition to the Heidelberg Catechism and to John Calvin, claiming that this reciprocity between worship and thought and life was at the heart of this tradition. Now, if this rule applies in general to doctrine, it has most certainly been true of the doctrine of election. The Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Convivendi rule has been particularly applicable in the way the church spoke about election. It is in prayer where the language of election is at home. This was in fact the original context in which uh, Prosper of Aquitaine composed the axiom for the first time in the fifth century. He was arguing against semi-Pelagianism when he formulated this rule. His point was that the apostolic injunction to pray for the whole human race 
in 1 Timothy 2, which the church everywhere obeyed in their intercessions, he said, that this proved the obligation to believe that all faith is from beginning to end the work of grace. The whole church everywhere, he said, begged and prayed for grace to all, to unbelievers, idolaters, heretics, schismatics, the lapsed, and thereby confessed their conviction that God is pleased to liberate from every error and from the power of darkness. Prosper argued. And with this argument, Prosper was building on the similar theological logic of his literary mentor, Augustine, who also used doctrinal arguments based on prayer and liturgy and also defended his doctrine of grace against the semi-Pelagian monks of Marseille by appealing to the spirit-led prayers of the church that unbelievers may be brought by God to faith. So as the church calls in prayer and worship on the free grace of God for all, the church in doctrine and witness reckons with and speaks of the free grace of God for all. The same is true of Romans and its doxology on God's election, chapter 11. When in, in, in her, when in Romans, Beverly Gaventa shows how worship is deeply ingrained in the fabric of this letter. Paul speaks here in the dialect of worship, she says. Christian living is placed within the sphere of worship, she explains. For Paul, there is an integral relation between worship and what we call ethics, she argues, and at the heart of this is the mercies of election. The arc of the letter, chapters 1 to 15, shows humanity empowered to praise God in the company of others, she says. In worship, we know who our Lord is, and we are shaped to live accordingly. In worship, we are shaped to welcome all other to the glory of God. And she says that this all of Romans is simply larger than we can imagine. Again and again, we create new distinctions between us and them, between us and others. And again and again, she argues, we lose the imagination the horizon, the vastness of God's salvation and of the gospel that encompasses the cosmos, the whole of creation, every square inch, in the words of Abraham Kuyper here in Princeton. The Dutch systematic theologian Gerrit Berkover argued in his divine election that this was precisely what Kuyper and Barfink were doing. I quote Barfink, it is the unanimous witness of all religious experience, said Barfink, 
that salvation is solely the work of God. Though in theory a person may be Pelagian, in the practice of the Christian life, above all in prayer, every Christian is an Augustinian. All glorying self is excluded and God alone is given the honor. Now Berkauer calls this an important word by Barthunk, an existential application of our experience of prayer. Barthunk wants to show that the doctrine of election is not about logical conclusions, but that Pelagianism conflicts with the religious nature of worship itself. Barfunk is warning against logical consequences that should be unthinkable in the light of Christian prayer. Barfunk is warning against doctrinal conclusions that are contradicted by bent knees and outstretched hands, says Berkower. In the prayers of the church, Human beings, all others, as well as ourselves, appear as objects of the eternal love of God. This is how Barfunk wants the church to think and speak about election, and therefore about everyone, however wretched they may seem to us, based on how the church worships and prays. To believe in and to confess election is therefore to recognize even the most worthy and degraded human beings as creatures of God and objects of God's eternal love for Barfunk. For this is how the church prays. The purpose of election is not, as it is so often proclaimed, he says, to turn off the many, but to invite all to participate in the riches of the grace of God in Christ. For that very reason, both for unbelievers and believers, the doctrine of election is a source of inexpressibly great comfort, since election operates according to grace. There is hope even for the most wretched. Therefore, because the church prays like this, the church should also think like this and speak like this. It is in worship that the church looks in the right direction, thinks its way into God's world, learns to see ourselves and others differently, and to speak about ourselves and others differently. So what if the church does not pray and worship like this? What if the church's worship does not form the church to think and speak differently about themselves and others? It is tragic but true that the story of apartheid in South Africa in some way originated in the heart of Christian worship. White worshippers in a rural congregation refused to share the Lord's Supper with believers from other backgrounds and asked the synod for permission to have separate celebrations. 
1857, Sinner decided that it was indeed preferable and scriptural that all believers shared the same worship. However, they understood that these measures could obstruct the Christian cause as a result of the weakness of some. Because these white members who refused to share the meal with black believers, often from slave origins, were no longer willing to support the missionary spread of the gospel. And for this reason, the Synod gave permission that in such exceptional situations, Christian privileges could be enjoyed separately, thus allowing for differences based on decent race and social status in the Lord's Supper. Over years, this historical concession became the common practice and still later the accepted norm for the order of the church. Gradually separate denominations were formed, all divided according to race or ethnicity. Believers in the white Dutch Reformed Church were made to believe that having separate churches for each nation, the Volkskerke, was the norm according to scripture and the will of God. This church policy would later form the religious roots of the ideology and since 1948 the official political policy of apartheid. The few white Dutch Reformed theologians who opposed this ecclesiology and argued for visible church unity were rejected as traitors of the folk, of the people. The story of apartheid is much, of course, much longer and much more complicated. However, there is no denying that the Christian faith also formed an integral part of that process. The Dutch reformed ecclesiology and mission policy of separate churches played a pivotal role. The white church increasingly appealed to government to introduce apartheid laws, while theologians provided scriptural proofs to justify the ideology. And in some way, it all began, sadly, in the Lord's Supper in the heart of Christian worship. In the struggle against apartheid, Christian worship would again play a crucial role in many and complex ways. But reaching one dramatic moment again in the Lord's Supper. In 1982, at the Ottawa meeting of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, representatives from the so-called daughter churches in the Dutch Reformed family, the black Reformed Christians from South Africa, refused to participate in the official Eucharist, claiming that it would be false to do so in an ecumenical context while they were excluded in the white church back home. In a public statement, they explained their action. They participated with pain up to that point in the worship of the Alliance, they said. But now they felt constrained not to take part in the Lord's Supper 
which is the essence of Christian fellowship. And their reasons were threefold, they explained. Firstly, back in their country, they said, by custom and church decision, which are defended theologically, black people were not permitted to partake of the Lord's Supper in the white churches. Secondly, the theological heresy that undergirded apartheid racism found its historical origin in separate communion. Their refusal to participate was therefore a refusal to reinforce the Christian roots of their oppression. The white churches consistently refused to have genuine reconciliation with black Christians, they explained, <coughs> through confronting the evil of apartheid and participating in the search for justice and peace and true humanity. To share communion with those who represented this disobedience to the gospel would for them mean eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Finally, thirdly, their refusal to participate anticipated the day of freedom when all black and white shall drink from one cup and eat from one loaf, they said. In his book called Cry Justice, a collection of prayers and hymns and poems, John de Grouchy later reflected on the ways in which liturgy can be used to prevent the gospel from taking hold. The worship and liturgy of the church can in practice make it difficult for the church to think and speak and act in accordance with the gospel, he argued. His essay was called Prayer, Politics and False Piety. And he suggested that worship is an ambivalent phenomenon. In reality, often more a reflection of society than a critical and creative interruption of society, making believers see differently and think and speak differently. If anything, Christians often endorse and celebrate the visions and values and virtues of their diverse communities and societies in worship, forming and strengthening people according to the expectations of their groups and communities, and not according to the gospel. This betrayal in the form of false piety may take on many forms. At the time, the Grushi discussed two forms namely the privatization of worship and the patriotic appropriation of worship in the service of nation or state. In both cases, he said, the God who is free and beyond human control is replaced with a God who can be manipulated to serve and sanction self-interest, whether personal needs and ends, or the needs and ends of groups. The God of false piety, he said, takes on the characteristics of the particular race, group, or class to which it may belong, 
And when we enter into battle, this God is undoubtedly on our side. Such false worship is, does what Romans warns against. It no longer welcomes the other the way Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. It replaces the God who is free to welcome, elect, and justify even the most wretched in our eyes with a God who belongs to us and serves our needs and interests, if necessary, to the point where this God is for us and on our side. This can happen more subtly and more easily and more unnoticed than we may care to think. As someone who grew up in the white Dutch Reformed Church, studied theology, became a minister and served in a congregation, I cannot remember any sermons in which apartheid was explicitly justified or even ever mentioned. By the time I grew up, it was no longer necessary. It was already in place. It was the way things were in our congregations, our worship, our life together, our white communities, our apartheid society. It was enough that no one said anything. The power of the ideology and of the false worship lay in the silence. The grip of the false piety was made possible because no one imagined any alternative. No one spoke of what could be. It was no longer necessary to speak about us as God's chosen people and about our election and our special privilege and calling because that was all taken for granted. Those were simply the way things were. The power of ideology lies in the reification, in making people accept that this is simply the way things are. The power of the betrayal was that no one spoke about God's gracious and free election and justification welcoming the other and by the mercies of God claiming and renewing us to do that as well, to the glory of this God. It reminds one, reminds one of, the, of the warnings of the book of James against the ways in which the readers speak about themselves and others, even in their worship and prayers. Where do the conflicts and disputes among them come from, asks James. Do they not come from the longings and the desires within them? They allow false distinctions between people, even in the church, between rich and poor, to determine the way they think and act and talk. They use the same tongue to praise God and to bring harm upon others by speaking evil about them, about image bearers of the same God. They say that they have faith, but they hold back the wages of the laborers so that the cries of the harvesters reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. They forget that pure worship before God 
is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. It reminds one of the many ways in which almost all biblical traditions are full of warnings against false worship. The hypocrisy that John unmasks of claiming to love God while we do not love those whom we can see. The shocking comments by Paul that he will not even call the celebrations of the congregation in Corinth the Lord's Supper. The alarming warning by Peter that they should show consideration and pay honor to those not regarded as equal in their societies so that their prayers may not be hindered. The deeply disturbing ways, sayings in the Gospels that not everyone who said, Lord, Lord, will be recognized and acknowledged in the day of judgment. A meditation by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Thy Kingdom Come on the petition in the Lord's Prayer made a lasting impression on Russell Botman. He returned to this meditation again and again uh, from the time of his doctoral dissertation to his time as Vice-Chancellor of Stellenbosch University. No one can pray for the kingdom, said Bonhoeffer, who thinks up a kingdom for themselves in terms of boldly conceived utopias, dreams and hopes, who live for their own worldview and know a thousand programs and prescriptions by which they would like to cure the world. End of quote. No one can pray for the kingdom, what one heard in these words, who pray only for their own plans and programs because they think they know how to cure the world. The temptation in worship is to equate our own interests and desires with the coming of God's reign. The danger in worship and prayer is not to imagine and desire the coming of the king, but rather of our own interests, perhaps while unaware that we are doing that. The black reformed delegates who withdrew from worship at the World Alliance motivated what they were doing by explaining how they understood the Lord's Supper and by speaking of the evil of apartheid. In their Augustinian tradition, evil, of course, means perversion of the good, misdirected desire for what is good. For them, evil is not something in itself located outside of us, but absence of the good and misplaced longing. It is this Augustinian tradition that also inspires the influential work on worship and life by the Oxford moral theologian Oliver O'Donovan. He calls the time he spent uh, on, with Augustine while working on his dissertation on the problem of self-love in Augustine, he calls that a life-shaping experience for him. And he later used Augustine's insights into the importance of our loves 
informing our lives in his own book called Common Objects of Love, Moral Reflection and the Shaping of a Community. Our shared identities and our social and political life reflect, I quote, our elementary knowledge of the world as a kind of love, he says, quoting Augustine's definition of a people as, Augustine, a gathered multitude of rational beings united by agreeing to share the things they love. Groups are constituted by their common objects of love and desire, and evil takes place when these desires are perverted. In several later writings, including The Desire of the Nations, Rediscovering the Roots of Political Theology, O'Donovan developed the practical implications of Augustine's political thought. If our political realities today do not trouble us, O'Donovan says, we will probably find Augustine's somber rhetoric about the darkness of the times perplexing and shake our heads in bewilderment. If, however, we do see the dark side of our common life and do agree that there are hardly any alternative patterns available, we may perhaps appreciate Augustine's insights into life and love and evil, into desire and darkness. For Augustine, we are free to choose the objects of our desires and the common objects of our shared loves. However, in the way we desire these goods, we may love them in perverted ways. And therefore, evil shows itself in idolatry, in an inordinate love for inferior goods, which averts our desire and love away from higher and more worthy goods. This is why perversion plays such a key role in Augustine's thought. Evil is perverted love, misdirected, misplaced, inordinate love for the good. For this reason, we find it difficult to recognize evil in ourselves. For that we need alternative ways of imagining the world. We need the practices of worship to challenge and transform our longings and our desires. In his study called Liturgy and Ethics, O'Donovan says that he was inspired to think about this theme by his teacher, Paul Ramsey, then the ethicist from Princeton University, with the same title, Liturgy and Ethics. According to Ramsey, the crucial question is whether the actions of the church are born in the consuming struggle of the church against itself for itself in what is known as status confessionis, the realization that the truth of the gospel itself may be at stake in the life of the church, may be threatened in the church 
by our perverted desires. It is this Augustinian tradition that inspires contemporary discourses on evil since Hannah Arendt's claims about the banality of evil. A radio interview with Arendt was recently published for the first time after almost half a century, called Eichmann war von empörender Dummheit. Eichmann was um, shockingly stupid. Uh, the book offers a fascinating insight into what she originally meant with her report on Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem and her controversial use of the term banality of evil. She meant that he was thoughtless, gedankenlos, she said. He was not thinking, not seeing, not understanding. It was this thoughtlessness which she found so disgraceful and so shocking, she explained. Rather than his evil intentions and cruel monstrosity, which so many wanted to see in him, and wanted her to accuse him of. There was nothing deep and demonic in him, she said. Simply the unwillingness and inability to imagine what others experience. By failing to see what was really at stake in these, those terrible events, she said, many of her critics were also failing to speak about what would become the most serious political, intellectual, and moral challenge of our times, political evil, the failure to imagine what others experience. The gender theorist Judith Butler explains that Arendt was trying to understand something unprecedented and to find words to describe what since then would become known as crimes against humanity. These are not so much the result of horrible intentions of monstrous individuals, but rather the result of the willing participation of many in everyday actions and inactions, the result of the banality of the thoughtless many through their blindness Refusal to see, unwillingness to think, inability to recognize their own flesh in others and to take responsibility for the effects of their lives on others they shared, perhaps unknowingly, in evil. Crimes against human beings are committed daily, Butler says, without being adequately named and opposed they easily become routinized and accepted almost without revulsion and political indignation and resistance. It is this Augustinian tradition that inspires many contemporary political theologians who speak about evil, like Paul Kahn, the legal scholar from the Human Rights Center at Yale. His political theology attempts to unmask some of the hidden assumptions of liberal democracy, delving into the depth of human depravity and the prevalence of violence, terror, and the willingness to sacrifice, preferably others, but if necessary, also one's own. 
His study called Out of Eden, Adam and Eve and the Problem of Evil, describes evil as love gone wrong, misdirected faith, pathology of the will. In his later work called Sacred Violence, Torture, Terror and Sovereignty, focuses on the surprising willingness of some in liberal societies to reconsider the possibility of torture. Evil may be the most pressing problem faced by contemporary societies, he argues, for the moral and political history of the 20th century was a history of evil. When the black reformed delegates argued in Ottawa based on their views of the Lord's Supper against the evil of apartheid, the World Alliance responded by declaring a status confessionis, a moment of truth, the church struggling against itself for itself, and this triggered a long history of deception. Back in South Africa, the confession of Belha was born as a consequence of this moment of truth. Some years later in Kitwe in Zambia, the confession of Bella inspired reformed Christians from all over Southern Africa to a declaration crying for life in the face of economic exclusion and ecological destruction. In Debrecen in Hungary, the World Alliance responded to this cry from Kitwe by declaring a process of confession calling on member churches all over the world to examine their own lives and to ask whether their faith is not perhaps at stake in the ways in which we participate in economic injustice and ecological destruction. In Accra, in Ghana, the reformed world responded to this call from Debrechen by drafting the Accra Covenant. And in the pastoral letter, sent to all member churches. They explained what happened to them during that meeting and why they adopted this Accra covenant. Together on an excursion, the delegates visited the infamous slave castles of Elmina, where they saw the dungeons where the captives were held before they were shipped away to unknown destinations forever separated from their families, perhaps to die somewhere at sea. Right above the dungeon was the hall where the ship owners ate and worshipped, while they would hear the anguish, moans and cries from underneath their feet. On the door of this hall where they worshipped, delegates could still see Dutch inscriptions from the book of Psalms, praising and worshiping God. How could our forebearers have done this, they asked, until they began to realize that we may still be involved in similar practices, also without seeing and understanding, without discerning the nature of our desires and loves, our relationships and power structures, without thinking about the consequences of our desires for others. Since Accra, German and South African 
Reformed churches together studied the Accra Covenant and responded with a document called Dreaming a Different World Together. The document was used as press release, but written in the form of a liturgical document for use in worship. It is addressed to God in prayer, but in such a way that the world may hear what the church is longing for. The church is imagining a different world together. The document is structured around four claims made both as prayer and public witness. Together from north and south, they discern the signs of our times, hear the cries of God's people, and see the wounds of God's creation, and therefore they lament. Together from north and south, they are comforted by the gospel, their common faith, their common tradition, and therefore they resist the ideology that there is no alternative, and the spirit of idolatry with its disdain for the household of life and the gifts of creation. Together from north and south, they heed the call of God's word, word and spirit, the claim of God on them today, and therefore they feel moved. Together in communion from north and south, they dream a different world. They long and sigh and pray, commit themselves and covenant together. In connection with the long-term illness and the death of his wife, Annie Pierce Kinkett Warfield, for whom these lectures were named, uh, Benjamin Warfield once referred to the words in Romans 8:28 about the church's size too deep for words at the heart of Paul speaking about election. Since we are too weak to help ourselves, and too blind to ask for what we need, we can only groan in unformed longings, he wrote. Yet we are comforted by the promise that God's Spirit is the author in us of these very longings. We are too blind even to know and ask for what we need. Yet through God's Spirit we may sigh with unformed longings and dream a different world together. <laughs>